This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. Alrighty, so a physics engineer turned CFO. The numbers would have clearly not been a hurdle for him. My guess today could have been many things, at least according to the entry written on him by one of us for the Republic of INSEAD yearbook O3D edition. If you haven't dug out your copy from the attic yet, waste no time, go get it, it's a gem. So let's hear the entry. As one of the proud band of Canadians in Fontainebleau, none of them anything like their American colleagues, of course, he often spoke movingly of his longing for the ice-cold lakes, towering pine trees, and hot, sweaty lumberjacks of home. Well, maybe not the lumberjacks. He enjoyed an eclectic range of interests, throwing the best frisbee in northern France, smoking salmon, designing drills, and alongside his girlfriend, chasing his two huskies through the farmyards and forests of the region. And after INSEAD, in driving around in a red Volkswagen van with tasteful curtains, he may be hinting at the future as an eco-warrior or bearded engineer lecturer. Certainly, you don't pose in a wetsuit for the profile book unless you have some skepticism for the corporate life. Who knows? Hairstyle apart, he has a variety of options. So, where do I begin? You didn't turn into an eco-warrior, at least not so far, but maybe a bit closer to the bearded lecturer, minus the beard and less the lectures. Well, in any case, you do work with scientists, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later podcast edition. You and I have been talking for quite some time now about making this happen, so thank you so very much for finding time in your schedule. I know it's not the easiest thing. I'd love to turn it over to you and ask you to give us the elevator pitch on the past 20 years of your life, personal, professional, everything that may be shared. And sure, I'd love to know how the taste in curtains has evolved over that period too. So over to you. Thanks, uh, Milena. Yeah, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. And uh, thanks for all you're doing with the reunion and the fundraising over the years. So uh, after I finished at uh, INSEAD, uh, actually it took some time to find my first play placement. Uh, and as maybe was indicated in that profile, which was hilarious to listen to, and I remember it from 20 years ago, uh, I was looking to apply technology. I had always been sort of addicted to technology businesses and this belief that technology can solve some of the most difficult problems of the world and do so at scale. Uh, I looked for a company uh, and was quite selective about where I would go and ended up at GE and, and specifically uh, in their experience commercial leadership program where a number of uh, INSEAD uh, uh, alumni have gone. I then um, married that uh, girlfriend, uh, Danica, within the f uh, six or 12 months after INSEAD 
and we were on a, a trip around uh, with different businesses in GE, in Cologne, in Paris, in New York, in Florence, and then uh, ultimately landed in London working with GE Healthcare and applying technology uh, to solving healthcare problems, uh, and specifically the GE Healthcare Life Sciences business, which was based out of uh, Stockholm. Danik and I started having a family during that. Our oldest son was uh, born in uh, in New York, uh, and the next two, uh, Luca and uh, Aurelia, uh, were born in um, were born in uh, in London. Uh, and after uh, around uh, 2010, tw- 2009, 2010. With three kids and being abroad, we we realized we wanted to get back home, uh, back to Vancouver, and uh, be closer to family. And uh, during that time at G Healthcare, I really fell in love with sort of these uh, next generation uh, technologies applied to biology and, and human health. And uh, in that time, managed to find a company that was uh, kind of in the leading edge of regenerative medicine back in Vancouver called Stem Cell Technologies and had met the owner some time before. And of course, it was back in my hometown uh, as a world leader uh, in, their sp- in their space and came back to Vancouver uh, just before the Olympics actually were in Vancouver, where it was basically impossible to find anywhere to live whatsoever. And uh, that, was a, that was, in hindsight, a, a blessing in disguise. And uh, Danica and I ended up in just outside of Vancouver in a town called Squamish, uh, which is very close to uh, Whistler, so about a 35-minute drive to Whistler. And I, in 2010, actually remembered my uh, youthful love for skiing and have been uh, skiing on the slopes of Whistler since 2010 with my kids. Uh, and in 2010, we added uh, our fourth child, Grayson. And then to cut to the chase in 2015, we added our fifth, uh, uh, Kate, and uh, we have been uh, blissfully, blissfully living in the uh, in the outdoors around those glacier lakes uh, in Canada and up on the mountains pretty much every weekend uh, for the last uh, ten years. At uh, Abcel, oh, sorry, at Stem Cell, I managed to um, help that company grow. When I joined, there was about two hundred fifty people, uh, and I became a member of the community here in Vancouver of uh, biotech people and the biotech uh, scene. Uh, and was reintroduced actually to a colleague of mine from the University of British Columbia. We were both in this same cohort of engineering, math, and physics back in the 90s. Uh, he had gone on to Caltech uh, and uh, came back and was a professor out at UBC. Uh, did ask me to lecture a couple of times uh, on uh, life sciences and, and business there. And he had a, an idea to apply his technology to solve some of the most difficult problems in drug discovery related to antibodies and started in 2012 uh, Abcelera uh, and I became a member of the board while I was still working at stem cell and after about 10 years of stem cell having helped them grow from like I said about 250 people to about 1500 people decided that uh, it was time to try again with Abcelera seeing all the what they could do and the market opportunity in front of them uh, it's made a switch and became the CFO at Abcelera in 2019. And then a number of uh, uh, crazy things happened with re- uh, related to, uh, to, um, uh, to the business and the growth of the business. We, uh, we happened to find ourselves uh, well, in, in an amazing position, and I can explain a little bit about biotech and, and about Abcelera maybe later. But we, 
through rapid succession, finished a, a fundraise. Then um, within 12 months, we managed to do a, an IPO, which was the second largest IPO, I think, for biotech on the NASDAQ um, uh, ever, I think, but next to, um, next to Moderna. And, uh, and since then have been building and growing the company, which is now about 550 people uh, here in Vancouver, but also around the world with offices in Sydney and, and in uh, Boston and in the UK and Cambridge. So IPO, startups, corporate, in fact, it's a big transition from GE into, into the wilderness of proper startups. So how did you transition and how do you compare these? Clearly, you've gotten the inspiration and lots of knowledge from, from the GE experience and exposure to the industry. But Yeah, with my role at GE, actually, I was leading uh, mergers and acquisitions for GE Healthcare Life Sciences. So it was about going and finding those smaller startup companies that had technology uh, that would fit into what GE was trying to do, the larger vision of, of GE. <clears throat> Strangely, also around antibodies, bioprocess, regenerative medicine, and the 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 skills kind of learned uh, through that process of uh, diligencing a number of companies, doing transactions. Actually, GE was really my training ground, uh, where I learned a lot of. Uh, I was already enamored by technology, and had this uh, this kind of crash course in corporate finance and financials and tax and dealing with businesses and doing diligence, integration, contracts. That was a, a real learning and training for me in my career, probably where I laid the found a lot of the foundations, because many of those skills you just you need as an executive, but you need as a kind of in the scrappy startup scale up, you know, environment as well, making sure you're doing the right contracts for the long term <clears throat> and uh, having a bit of uh, confidence and swagger, if you will, of uh, of how to have uh, have a vision for the company that you have and the vision we have at Abcelera and actually I was also involved in another company uh, was the chairman of the board of a company called Precision Nanosystems here in Vancouver which uh, sold in 2021 to Danaher their technology and technology out of Vancouver uh, was uh, lipid nanoparticle technology and these are the particles, uh, the lipids that were in every mRNA-based vaccine that has gone in most of the population of the Earth. So it was, it was quite a contribution from the local environment here that have touched a lot of people. And uh, amazing to be in an ecosystem where we played such a significant role during the pandemic. The, the role of lipid nanoparticles uh, for mRNA vaccines, you know, people probably familiar with that. And actually, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is everyone's become a part-time immunologist. So people actually understand what uh, biotech is about and can put many of these biological discoveries that are highly technical in some form of context because of their own personal experience. Similarly, Abcelera, the goal of Abcelera, we are in the discovery of antibodies. And again, everybody now knows what antibodies are. And uh, they are they are, of course, important in fighting infectious disease. The truth is that antibodies are Mother Nature's solution for fighting off disease and infection much, much more broadly than just around infectious disease. So they are a relatively new class of, med of therapeutics, um, really only been around for the last 20 years. It's about a $200 billion market at the moment, still growing double digit. 
and with no signs of really slowing down. They are extremely safe because they're <clears throat> not chemicals. They're, they're, bi they're part of biology that, that people have within them in their re immune response. And they are effective at treating anything from, you know, pain to metabolism to uh, neurodegenerative disease, uh, cancer and oncology. Uh, so, it, it, you know, diabetes, uh, they have applications in all of these different disease areas. And we are really only at the beginning of how the impact that they can play in helping to prevent uh, and cure disease. And all of the antibodies or almost all of the antibodies that are out there and being sold today, providing relief for patients, were discovered and developed using a technology that received the Nobel Prize in the 1970s. And the thesis of Abcellera was a lot changed since 1970s in terms of our understanding of biology, sequencing, computation, uh, PCR, all of these kind of fundamental technologies that, that the thesis was the technology that was invented in the 70s has picked all of the low-hanging fruit. But in order to get to the next level, we need to be on a different technology curve that is going to make it possible to discover these medicines for this next generation or next cohort or wave of, of therapeutics. And what we decided to do is using modern technologies, rebuild the entire front end of drug discovery uh, with relation with as it relates to antibodies. And of course, if you tell anybody and anyone who's been in a, a startup environment, if you tell anyone you're going to rebuild the front end of drug discovery, every VC will immediately throw you out and say, you know, you're nuts. Um, that's going to take a billion dollars in 10 years to even prove that you have something special. Uh, and then it will take 10 more years of testing to get a approved therapeutic. And you'll never survive that long. If you have any angle on how to make a better drug, go and make a drug. So that will be basically the pitch that every technology company or the response that every technology company will get if they tried to pitch this idea. And even and the one that Epsilera got. What that meant was the company stayed very lean and mean using, you know, grants, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation money for, you know, infectious disease applications in, uh, in, for global health. And somewhat clairvoyantly in 2017 applied for a, a grant and proposal put out by DARPA to build a, an engine for rapid pandemic response, which in 2017, true to their reputation, you know, DARPA was thinking way ahead. And we had actually done a capability demonstration that would show that we could find an antibody in as little as 60 days uh, that would be useful in the event of a pandemic. We had done two of those capability demonstrations. And then when the actual pandemic uh, hit with SARS-CoV-2, uh, we were, we were kind of sent the first blood sample that was on North American soil in order to put our technology and our engine to work. And in what it, what it was world record speed, we went from receiving a sample to dosing a patient uh, with an antibody, a drug in 90 days, which is a process that normally takes uh, four years, four or five years. And we had many people say, you know, how did you even do that? You know, if you're if you're familiar with the art of uh, drug discovery, it's like 
telling somebody you just saw somebody run a hundred meters in 2.5 seconds. And you're like, it's, it's not possible. You defied some of the laws of physics to make that happen. But of course, our thesis here was we've made these investments in technology to make the previously impossible possible. And here was our moment where we validated in, in arguably the most competitive drug development project in the history of the world. We came first, this small company out in Vancouver, and that was recognized by our partner, uh, Eli Lilly, who then took that drug. And we recognized we did not have the capability to scale up manufacturing, deal with the regulators, distribute the drug around the world. And uh, Eli Lilly, of course, managed to do that. And six months after dosing the first patient, uh, that drug received an emergency use authorization. And uh, then we had a second antibody and were the only group that had a second antibody that was resistant against some of the variants of concern that, of course, started popping up later. And in the end, uh, our products, uh, that, that product uh, went into uh, about two and a half million people, saving an estimated, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations because they were normally given to high risk people uh, and tens of thousands of lives. And, and actually, you can you can spend your entire career in biotech and not have that kind of uh, patient impact, which was extremely rewarding for everyone here. And, and of course, validated our thesis that these investments in technology can make get us on a new uh, technology curve for finding these therapeutic antibodies in best in class and in a faster pace than anyone else ha has been able to do it in the past. Amazing, amazing story. Well, just yesterday I read this headline in the New York Times, a paralyzed man can walk naturally again with brain and spine implants. This is not quite your side of business, but it's still in the tech. I was reading it and I couldn't believe it because it's I understand how conceptually how it works, but to actually make it happen is amazing. And um one of the books that probably in the last two years made an impression on me is by a doctor by the name of David Sinclair. I don't know if you've heard of him or the book. The book is called Lifespan. And in it, he talks about the natural length of life that we humans are designed for, uh, which is about 120 years. And he was saying in the book that on the basis of all advances in medicine and technology science, uh, our children may expect to be getting closer to that than to the 80 odd years that we have at the moment. So there you go. You're, te you're telling me you've done the 100 meters uh, in two and a half seconds. So it, mm. it couldn't get to zero, right? But Yeah. Well, actually, what's, what's interesting is there's this, this field, I guess you would call as tech-enabled biotech that is really emerging right now. And yeah, there, there are some great books out there, actually. The Song of the Cell is a book uh, uh, that I read recently, uh, had been recommended to me. And the thing that struck me most about that book is they were, they were recapping the history of, you know, how, of biology and, uh, and what the major stories have been with the, the, uh, the major breakthroughs in biology. And unlike if you were to try to do this in math and physics and, and chemistry, all of the people who made these massive contributions are long since dead. I mean, they have been doing those giant leaps forward in, uh, in math and, and many of the very difficult problems are already solved. You have to spend an entire career to even understand all of the work that's been done th thus far in physics and math. 
just to get at the frontier where you can start to try something new. And now you're extremely theoretical physics that only a handful of people in the world can even understand to try and find something new that can maybe have an impact. In biology, this is not the case at all. Like even in the writing of this book, the author is actually interviewing in a cab the people who have made the giant discoveries over the last 20 or 30 years. And that really should strike everyone and, and realize that we are still only at the very beginning of understanding biology. We are where the IT semiconductor computation uh, industry was in like the 1950s. And, uh, it, and so there is a very exciting time in front of us to make discoveries and developments that are going to massively impact uh, human life and uh, and disease and and ultimately uh, and longevity uh, i think is another quite interesting area uh, we are of course are not working on that uh, but there are other people who are who are out there trying to challenge the the conventional understanding of the rules of longevity um, through our ability to uh, understand and potentially uh, uh, manipulate biology so this is quite an optimistic message you are giving here you see assuming we don't burn to hell or drown in <laughs> in, uh, in the waters that we've caused to melt ourselves but what what are the most promising areas that your scientists or or is it because i was reading on the website it's about molecules and hmm. what is the most promising work that's being done from what you see yeah i'll, I'll say in so when you think about drug development uh, and you try and break it down into any kind of product development cycle, the, the input at the beginning of the process is what's called is the, the ideation. So somebody has some unique insight into biology and they believe that if they can find a, a molecule that would bind to this kind of a, a target with certain functional characteristics, meaning it, it elicits some kind of biology, either stops something from happening or encourages something to happen, that maybe that could be a good drug in a certain disease indication or physical condition. And so that is like, those are the requirements. So this idea, we, we don't claim to have any angle on how to come up with those ideas better. This is in the world of academia and, and research and finding just some kind of insight into biological function and you build your requirements. Then comes product development. And that's where, okay, now I'm trying to find a molecule that actually delivers that biological insight. And that is where technology can really have a, a role. So this goes from seeing your requirements all the way through to having a product that you can then start testing. And that is where we play and that is where we are trying to be the best in the world for antibodies because we believe they're a, a very, pro, like they, they have applications in a broad number of diseases, as I mentioned earlier, and can really move the needle in many of them. And we are aiming to be best in the world from going from that identification, that insight to the product that can start testing. What most people associate drug development with is what happens next, which is testing. And because you are actually testing in humans. There is, that is the clinical trials testing that can take eight to 10 years and cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion dollars. And your probability of success is about one in 20 will be successful 
And it, and of course it costs you a billion dollars to try. So it makes no sense whatsoever to pull any punches on the product development, which only costs, you know, a couple tens of millions to, to find that product, to then start that testing. And unlike in software, uh, there's no such thing as minimum viable product that you're going to then iterate on. You, it's one of the most complicated technological product development cycles and heavily regulated out there in the world. And there are a thousand things that need to go right in the discovery of your molecule to try and make sure you have the right one. And th what we're finding, and when you said, what are some of the most exciting things is that our investments in technology are making it possible, we believe, to find antibodies against a class of targets. So this is somewhere where somebody has already had the biological insight. They have maybe validated the biology using small molecules, which are what we typically call pharmaceuticals today. They're chemicals that are synthesized. And because they're synthesized, they're very easy to manufacture, but they have often toxicity issues or side effects. And that's the small print that is on all these labels, you know, and the reason is because they're small molecules. So yes, they go to the target that you wanted to deliver the biological insight, but then they also go to your brain and your liver and they may cause, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, pain, addiction, you know, all these other side effects that make them not safe and therefore not a very good drug. Now, for us, that valid, that list of targets that's been highly validated by these small molecules is a treasure trove of of potential products that have thus far eluded the best of the best in the industry to find antibodies against. And because antibodies are large molecules, they are very specific and they don't go to all these places that they're not supposed to go to. But there are classes of targets that have thus far been intractable using conventional antibody discovery techniques. So we are making the investments in technology to crack those problems. I think anyone in the industry would say that if anyone is able to do this, it would be Abcelera. It's not done yet. This is a very hard thing to do. But if we are successful, this is a, uh, a whole area where we would essentially have a technological monopoly on finding molecules that are potentially both effective and safe against a giant class of targets that are impacting real disease areas that have thus far been untreatable. Uh, and that is a very exciting thing to think about. And, and probably where, where we're putting our efforts, one of the areas that I think is going to be uh, most exciting going forward. And in terms of threats, and uh, not to your business necessarily, but in medicine and in, in the industry, what do you see? Do you see another, well, they keep on talking about another pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. It may be an opportunity for you, in fact, but what do you see as threats to humanity from, yeah. Yeah, threats to humanity. Wow, that's a big question. Uh, so. <laughs> from your field. <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, um, uh, so I would say um, uh, another pandemic, I think everyone, will be much more prepared next time. And actually in many ways, we might be over-prepared when there's a next one, we are likely to completely overreact. Uh, you know, if everyone will remember in 2003, SARS-CoV-1, you know, you put some mats out at the bottom of planes and get people to disinfect their feet and, you know, think that'll stop the spread. And 
you know, then there was H1N1 in 2009 and then Ebola and Zika. And, you know, these things kind of went away. And I think everybody thought when COVID hit that it would be kind of the same. We're going to have more. I mean, we've had five in the last 20 years. That's a bit crazy. And now we've been completely attuned to this. I think the investments and technology are such that we are able to react much, much more quickly. And chances are when the next scare hits us, we will, we will, people will probably overreact in order to, uh, you know, stem the spread. But, you know, the risk of another pandemic, I think we're, we're much better prepared than, than we were five years ago, let's say, for, for developing vaccines and, and antibody therapeutics. In terms of what are other threats in biology, I'm, are uh, threatening humanity. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure I, I know how to answer that. Uh, in terms of excitement, how did it feel, in fact, switching to you as a CFO, how did it feel to be, to be ringing the bell on the floor at the day of the IPO? I've seen the picture. <laughs> I used yeah. to cover, I was in equity markets, but uh, I mean, that's quite a rare thing to actually be there. So. Well, actually, we we didn't get to that was all done virtually. So uh, we didn't get to physically ring the bell in the IPO. Our IPO process was um, our timing, I think, was couldn't have been much better. But it was a massive sprint to from the date where we decided, had our kind of kickoff meeting and, and then uh, which was in late August 2020. And then we we ended up um, IPOing in early December. Uh, and frankly, it was it was all done by Zoom. So I think it was a very different IPO experience than many uh, have had, but I think saved us uh, a lot of travel and we probably covered a lot more ground um, in terms of reaching out to investors, et cetera, than we, than we would have been able to do to uh, doing it the more old fashioned way. And the pop in the price, was that expected? Because it was a dramatic pop. Yeah, the, on the day of the IPO, I mean, our official IPO price was twenty bucks, and the first trade was at you know north of seventy, and uh, and then settled on the first day at about just under sixty bucks. Yeah, that was it. Was like I said, we timed our IPO. Uh, I don't think in terms of the uh, the sentiment in the market, I don't think we could have timed it much better. We did run a very good process, I think, uh, and we had a lot of great investors involved in our series B. Actually, our, our goal of our series B was to get the best of the best of the biotech and tech investors. Um, so we had uh, from the biotech side, the Baker Brothers, Orbimed uh, are very well known biotech investors. And on the tech side, we had uh, Teal Capital and Founders Fund uh, join in our series B, and they also all participated in the in the IPO. The there was a lot of uh, uh, exuberance uh, around the the um, the IPO time, especially because of the role we had in COVID, and we had the only approved antibody for COVID. It, at the from the six months or twelve months after that, you know, of course, we 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 uh, we managed to structure our our deal with Eli Lilly in a way that filled up our balance sheet, which, by the way, allows us to continue this journey we mentioned of rebuilding the front end of drug discovery with modern technologies. And that thing that venture capitalists said we'd never be able to do, which is it's going to take us a billion dollars and a decade plus, and then you won't get validated. We managed to do all of that through this kind of black swan moment we had, or white swan moment, I guess, uh, you know, right. through the uh, 
through the pandemic. However, uh, so it was definitely in terms of validating the technology and putting us in a great liquidity position, especially given that tough markets uh, happened uh, subsequent to that. It was a good thing for the company and a good thing for our ability to reinvent drug discovery. The first year of being a publicly traded company, though, it was quite character building because nobody understood what we were doing. We were completely associated with being a COVID company. And no matter how often we would say we are not a COVID company, you know, it's difficult to tell people, you know, just ignore the $200 million a quarter that's going through our PL. That's not really what the business is about. And, you know, in many ways, I think it, it, frightened off a lot of the investors we actually wanted on the cap table who understood what we were doing and that it is actually a very long-term play about rebuilding uh, and, the, and enhancing, dramatically enhancing the capabilities of drug discovery. And that was quite painful through that whole process. And many investors who we definitely believed had the profile of the investors we wanted uh, said, I'm just going to wait until I'm sure all the COVID volatility is baked out of your stock because I love the story. You're a platform technology. I just, we don't, we are a long fund and you have got this volatility related with COVID and we're not interested in that. We're just going to have to wait. So we went through that cycle. And then of course, there was just this massive sell-off in everything biotech and tech-enabled biotech uh, through 2021 which we originally fared quite well through, but then, uh, but then um, have recently struggled a bit, um, but that's because of this kind of risk-off share sentiment. Share price-wise, you mean? Well, not for share price-wise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, not in the company, <laughs> in the company, the company's three, three times the company we were when we IPO'd in, on every metric that matters, perhaps except the share price. But that's, you know, it, that's the Jeff Bezos quote, you know, in the short run, the market is a voting machine and in the long run, it is a weighing machine. And, you know, we are we are building something of serious mass here and we have the liquidity to do it and we have the management team and the vision to, to execute, I think. So just to finish on this, the magnitude in terms of numbers, what is your what is what what ba what's your balance sheet? Obviously, it's public information, but for the yeah. those who listen, what's the balance sheet and what's the team? The budgets you're operating with at the moment? We're a team of about uh, 550 people here uh, spread around the world, as I mentioned, Mo the, the lion's share of which are in Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. The balance sheet at the moment, uh, we have over $800 million on the balance sheet, uh, so we're in a very stable liquidity position. We don't see the need to raise any capital for at least the next three years is the kind of official uh, sentiment in, uh, in our SEC documents. As we say on our earnings call, and you know there there is a path where we don't need to raise capital again, but of course it all depends on our execution. And uh, we're doing real technology things here, and there's always technical risk as well as execution risk. So, uh, but we we so there if we do execute as we would expect, there's definitely a path where we we don't need to raise capital again. But at the very minimum, we have at least three years. Uh, given our strong balance sheet. Nice position to be in, despite the turbulence of the last year. So <laughs> good yeah. job. So if we can switch gears, actually, because you and I have been talking, 
Well, you had been disconnected in a way. Um, and then as many who are listening here would know, my part of my agenda being fundraising for a class. Um, in one of my spammy moments during Giving Day in 2021, it was, I had sent the WhatsApp message to you as well. And then a couple of days later, I got a response, which I didn't, I was surprised. And it said, Hey, Milan, I have been delinquent for nearly two decades on this as I focused on building the career and family. We've now heard five kids dramatic career so i fully understand and then uh, what has typically been the donation over the years that i have to catch up on for our promotion and then you caught up on this and then we started talking more and where we are at now with you and i'm super super excited to announce this to the class is that you have pledged to make 150k contribution to our fund, the O3D scholarship fund, subject to the rest of us matching it. So we have a bit of work to do here, but it's super exciting. And I must say we have at the moment about 430,000 in our fund. So we are a very, very special class in this respect. And with your contribution, and I assume we match it, will be coming close to a million. So that's the big number I'm eyeing. But uh, I wanted to ask you, so 20 years you were busy with career and, uh, and family. Um, how do you decide, or first of all, how do you think, because we've also talked about you, you are looking at philanthropic activities. So how do you think about philanthropy on one hand and how do you feel or how do you think about giving back to INSEAD at this point in, in your life and your career cycle, personal cycle, etc.? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, we've been lucky to have some success. And I would say the luckiest thing is like I'm having the time of my life and my career and my family as well. So uh, and uh, fortunate that uh, through that, uh, you know, we've had some financial success and looking back and thinking about where are the what has helped to contribute to that over the years and what's the opportunity where we can give back. Uh, I recently actually organized the uh, with some other graduates of the engineering physics program back at UBC, uh, a material contribution between a, a few of us for a million dollars uh, collectively. We all wanted to give back, has had had, had some success from that. Um, and uh, another one on my list is especially to INSEAD. And at the time, you know, when I went to INSEAD, I, I got a scholarship from the Canadian INSEAD Foundation for 7,500 bucks. And and also, I think as many people had like the the, the beloved ABN AMRO uh, loan um, to which I know is no longer available as well uh, to make it possible for me to even uh, go to INSEAD. And even when I got that scholarship, which was meaningful for me at the time, I uh, remember thinking, OK, when the time comes, I'm going to be, you know, of the frame of mind to give back uh, when I can uh, afford to do so. And, you know, always had the the uh, direction and, and belief that it was just a matter of time we were going to get there. And then uh, it's difficult to say that, you know, we, we're not there at that point. Uh, and there are other places where Danica and I are, are thinking of giving back. You know, our, our kids themselves have used the hospital system here, I don't know, countless times in the Vancouver area and even abroad. And, you know, it's an opportunity for us to, uh, to give back when those systems have been there for us. Um, so we have a number of pockets that we're we're thinking of, and uh, and we're trying to take it be quite deliberate about that. And and one of the ways is, and we've taken some advice on that, uh, and 
Uh, and one of the ways, of course, is you know to put it in places where you know it's well run, it's well organized, and it's going to a great cause, and where there's an opportunity to maybe leverage the the philanthropy with others, also hoping to inspire them to also contribute, um, as we did just recently out at UBC. And as I'm sure, and I, as, as I know, you'll be successful in doing here because you've you've been at it for so many years. Twenty years, twenty years, guys. Uh, but I'm so grateful, and it was really—I mean, I, I've been chasing people uh, for twenty years, and some of them are like, "Oh, you again?" But no, um, I love it because I have converted some people who, in the beginning, were telling me outright, "I will never give to Insead because the administration or because whatever," you know, the tuition is so high. So I'm super, super, super fortunate, and thank you so much because it was an unexpected poof. What a nice surprise. I usually, you know, have to chase people. And instead you are chasing me. Guys, Andrew was chasing me for 18 months. <laughs> so we were, Canada is a bit complicated. So we had to work with the association there, et cetera, et cetera. But thank you so much for this. And now to the last part where I have a bunch of quick questions and answers. If we can try that <clears throat> and see where we go. Your, proud, sure. your proudest achievement. They, of course, have to be the family. So we spend with five kids. You, uh, you do spend a lot of time with the family, uh, and uh, it's chaotic. And especially now, they're between seventeen and seven, and uh, you know the eldest is graduating this year, and the littlest, she's still a, a, a Spitfire, and uh, and everything in between. But that yeah, that would be the proudest achievement. Success for you is. I think uh, actually we are quite thoughtful about this at, at Abcelera in, in talking about what we call, we don't call it work-life balance. We actually call it um, finding your work-life synergy because if you, it is not a zero-sum game. It might be a zero-time game in terms of hours, but it is in terms of fulfillment and finding that, figuring out how your own personal health, your family, um, uh, what you're doing, uh, reading, skiing, whatever it is, uh, enjoyment with friends, uh, and how that, you know, finding the right level of activity there, it actually feeds the ability to work better, harder, more focused. Uh, and it is, it is not at the expense of spending time there is not at the expense of achieving things in your professional career. And it takes quite, it, quite a lot of thought to figure out how what the right makeup of this is and of course it's different for everybody so for some people it could be a, a, a strictly a balanced thing based on hours but i think you know trying to get this right is like a, a, a constant pursuit yeah i know something about it <laughs> but still mm -hmm. struggling i'm not as good as you uh biggest regret if any yeah i don't have many regrets Excellent. i, I love that yeah. what yeah. keeps you awake at night Actually, I'm also, uh, it's, I, I'm well known for this. Uh, sleeping is my superpower. Uh, so I can sleep. Uh, it drives Danica crazy. I can fall asleep in seconds anywhere on a plane for an overnight flight. So I sleep pretty well. Yeah. You get eight hours or? No, I don't need eight hours, but I will, when I decide, oh, I'm going to go to bed, boom, I'm asleep. And I typically get up pretty early. Uh, usually five or or so, and uh, I'm usually at five, at some time in the fives, texting with the CEO here is one of my best friends, uh, Carl. 
so that's that's kind of a regular routine. Superpower. Wish you had known or someone had told you. Yeah, um, yeah. I this is a this is a great question. So I I think I I used to be even back in my INSEAD days. I considered myself in my twenties, at least, a bit of a an athlete. Like I was, uh, I was a, a varsity rower at university, and I was quite fit. And through my thirties, I I kind of let that go because well, so much was going on. We were moving all over the place. I was working at GE. We were having a family, and I I lost the plot a bit on physical, personal physical fitness, and thinking I was thinking that it was a balance. I, I couldn't spend time there because I needed to spend the time over here. And I, I didn't get that right whatsoever for, I'm going to say about 15 years. And it's taken some struggle in the last two or three years to, you know, get that back. So I, I wish I would have known how important it is to build the habits every day. And it is a part of your day to get out there and exercise. Uh, it is actually, if you hear, especially in biology and drug development, if someone told you, hey, there's a, there's a miracle drug and it, it prolongs life and prevents disease and makes you feel better and you eat better and everything is better, you know, you'd be like, great, I love it. And it's like, well, actually that exists. It's like doing an hour of exercise every day. And uh, it, it is so true. The comorbidities with, with uh, people with high, high physical fitness are like, it's it's, there is no better drug out there in the market than looking after yourself. Uh, so it, that is something I wish I had held on to a little bit longer or not forgotten about during my, my 30s. But you're on track now, right? So there's hope, right? right? There's hope, yeah. It, it's been a struggle for a couple of years. Not a struggle, but it's taken a real deliberate effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah habits, habits formation is, uh, yeah, it's a topic. So retirement, ever, never... Not right now. I'm not thinking about that. Just too much to do. So um, I, I don't know. I don't think I'd ever. Say, I'd say never. But um, but the where would you retire? Uh, here in BC, actually, we recently bought a, a property. About it takes a few hours to get there from Vancouver, but it is in kind of the real frontier, uh, out on the west coast, uh, on the ocean, and uh, it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And so I would go there. All right. If you had to pick one book everyone should read, what would you recommend? Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Yeah. Think and Grow Rich. All right. Biggest irony? Biggest irony. Oh, I don't know that one. All right. Can I take a pass on one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most admired public person for you. Most admired public person. I think, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a, uh, you know, one that many people think of and uh i've recently been re-watching a lot of the videos that steve jobs put out about product development investing in technology and the guy was you know so thoughtful and on top of everything like his his uh and the marketing he had like he, he really knew how to build uh you know a company and again in this in this uh in this effort of using technology to solve the most difficult problems. He did it with such, uh, such class and, uh, and vision and, you know, his, uh, think different campaign, actually rewatched re that, uh, video clip about when he introduced that think different campaign about, you know, it, you know, it's the most crazy people. And it, you have to be crazy to 
think you can change the world and uh, and it's the crazy people who can do it. I just I think he was just way ahead of his time. Hmm. Most despised public person? I don't really despise a lot of people, so I, I don't think I really have uh, someone I'd throw in that uh, in that camp. Fair enough. And the last one, are you coming to reunion? I am planning later. to. Yes. I am planning to come to the So as a reminder, it's October 6th and 7th. We are working on things behind the scenes. So for everyone, a reminder. And for you, thank you so much for the time and for your generosity. And hopefully we see you finally live in Ponti in October. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much, Milena. And, uh, you know, probably I speak on behalf of everyone to thank you for your uh your diligence and your perseverance in uh, herding the cats to do something special for uh, for us as a as a legacy to uh, to INSEAD. As I as I know, it was a uh, foundational moment and year for all of us in in our lives. So thanks yeah. for continuing that effort on. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. You were listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Dare Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.